0: And so we've read a lot. Uh, I'm trying to get Esther done by the end of June. And so we'll be doing two chapters uh, every Sunday until then. And there's 10 chapters in Esther. And remember where we are up to this point where um, Esther has become the queen. She has hidden her identity. No one except Mordecai knows that she is a Jew. And Haman is this very, very high-ranking official And he has commanded and demanded that when he walks through the center of the city, that people bow to him. Show him respect, big respect. Uh, But Mordecai, who is the one who raised Esther, refuses to bow to him. Maybe because he is obedient to the law of God that says don't bow to idols. But more probably because he's got an ethnic grudge against Haman's people. So Haman, in his fury and his wrath, seeks not only to destroy Mordecai, but, knowing that Mordecai is a Jew, seeks to destroy every single Jew in the Persian kingdom, which means he would be annihilating every single Jew on the face of the planet. And so we come to chapters 5 and 6, because Mordecai has come to Esther not come, he sent messengers to Esther begging her to do something. Please, you're the only one who has access to the king because the king is the only one who can reverse this policy, who can reverse this law, because the king's word is law. But Esther is afraid because no one comes to the king unless they are invited Because if you come and you are not invited and the king does not want to see you, you will be put to death. And yet Esther, knowing that she has no other choice, will fast and pray for three days. Just as the rest of the Jews in the citadel of Susa will pray for three days. And so what we're reading today is the result of that prayer. And of course, as Esther is praying, she's not simply praying, although prayer is not simple. Uh, She's not only praying, but she's planning as well. And today we read about the unfolding of that plan, what she's been coming up with. Uh, And she comes up with a dinner plan. Right? She goes to the king, and the king sees her. And the king knows the law. He knows that Esther just being there, without him inviting her, even though he has not seen her in a month, he hasn't called her in in a month or maybe two months, right? Um, She just shows up, and he knows that she took a really big risk in doing that. And luckily for Esther, or maybe not luckily, maybe... It is by the grace and will of God that he was pleased to see her, that she won favor in his sight. And he says to her, because he knows the risk that she took to come before him. And so he says, what is it that you want Esther? I will give you up to half my kingdom. Because, again, he knows she took a big risk. So, so if she took that big of a risk, whatever she came here to do, must be really important. It must be really urgent. It must be really, really critical that she get the king's attention. And the king must be confused because what does Esther say? If it pleases the king, I want to make you dinner today. (laughs) Imagine someone risking their life so that they can cook you dinner. Right. And so he must be really confused. He must be like, why would you, why would you risk death just so you can feed us? But he's not going to complain. right? This guy, obviously, he loves rich parties. He loves fancy feasts. Not the cat food, but actual fancy gourmet dinners. He loves, and he loves drinking. We know he loves drinking. And so he's like, like you and Haman, you're going to come, and I'm going to have this big banquet for you. And he's like, all right. And he goes, and him and Haven are having a great time. And uh, the king's at dinner. You know, he's, he's, a little, he's a little tipsy. And he's like, all right. So now, because he knows, this, this is not it. He knows. He's like, Esther, now will you tell me what you want? I'll give you half my kingdom if that's what you want. And she says, I will tell you at another dinner that I will throw for you tomorrow. And so he's like, all right. And at this time, Haman, Haman is really happy because not only has he been recently promoted to this really high-ranking official position, he's pretty much like second to the king, right? He has uh, so much administrative power, not only that, But Esther, the queen, the queen who has replaced Queen Vashti, the queen that uh, the king himself handpicked, the queen is throwing an exclusive party for me and the king. And so he is happy. He is so happy. Uh, but (coughs) um, But then he sees Mordecai, and then he's not happy. And so he... He goes home, starts ranting to his family and his friends. Uh, and they tell him, hey, you know what you should do? You should build a gallows to hang him. Uh, and then tell, him, tell the king in the morning to hang him, right? And so Haman is waffling between being really happy and then being really mad. And then he's like, oh, I'm happy again. And then he goes to the king, and the king can't sleep. And the king reads, has this, these chronicles read to him. And he's like, hey, we never did anything for Mordecai. And so he must have been staying up all night, right? Mordecai comes to him in the morning, and Mordecai is about to tell him his big plan. Hey, we should hang Mordecai. But the king instead um, says, hey, what should we do with, with someone who I really want to reward? And Haman's like, oh, well, I'm a high-ranking official, and I've had this exclusive dinner with Esther and the king. He's probably talking about me. So he lays out, oh, you should write. You should, Put him on your horse, give him your robes, give him your crown, and tell everyone in the world that this is what happens when the king is pleased with you. And he says, okay, good. Do that to Mordecai. And so we see this great... I think we're meant to laugh at the irony, at just kind of the... Because Haman's getting rocked at this point, right? And I think it might be a foreshadowing of what is to come in chapters 7 and 8. Um, now, these two chapters, chapters five and six, I've, done a long, I've spent 10 minutes recounting what happened in these two chapters. But these chapters are kind of in these two middle chapters of this 10 chapter book. Uh, it's it surprisingly like tells a lot about Haman himself, right? We really get a deep glimpse into who Haman is as a character, as a person, his personality, and so in this book, that is situated in the very word of God, I think this is the most character development we get out of any of the various enemies of God that we see in the Bible. Like nowhere else in the Bible do you really get this in-depth look at uh, someone who God is about to destroy. <laughs> like you really don't, you don't, really don't get that. Um, <coughs> my, uh, anyway, so we really got a deep look into who Haman is, his inner life, what makes him tick, what makes him go. And we have to realize, as we're reading this book, and as we're reading these two chapters, that we are really not all that different from Haman. That this man, who is obviously not a good boy, we are really not all that different from him. We, like Haman... We're going to go through why we're like Haman, but at the end of the day, as much power as Haman has, as much recognition as Haman has, he really is just a small little man. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the great book, the Bible, is this, that though we are just little men and little women in a world filled with little men and little women, we as Christians we worship, and we recognize a really big God, and so that's that's what we're talking about today. Small men, and women are included in that kind of anthropos. Uh, small men, and big God, right? That's the two things we're going to look at today. Because when I, when I talk when I refer to men, you know, Haman being a small little man. I'm referring to man's true self, humanity's true self, who we, just like Haman, who we really are. And I'm going to compare that to three things that God has revealed himself to be so man's true self and God's true self. The first is this that Haman and we are insignificant. Haman and us, we are insignificant. You know how we know that Haman is insignificant? Because he has risen to this high-ranking position. And he has a, a private dinner with the queen and with the king. And yet, what Haman really wants and what Haman reveals that he really wants is not actual significance. It is merely to be seen as significant. What Haman wants is not actual significance. What Haman wants is the appearance of significance. Right? Uh, What makes Haman really, really happy? It's not the fact that he has this job, It's not the fact that he has these one-on-one and two-on-one encounters with royalty. It's the fact that when he goes through the city center, people bow to him. That's what makes him really happy. He walks through the city center, and all these people are reminding him, Haman, you have the power to make us bow. You know what makes him really happy? That he can go to his family, go to his wife, go to his friends, he invites them over just to tell them this. Hey, guys, I'm rich. Hey, guys, I'm in a high-ranking position. Hey, guys, I had dinner with Esther and the king. He invites them just to tell them that. You notice that? But everything that he is, everything that he's accomplished, everything that he has gained is nothing to him, right? In verse chapter 5, verse 12, Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All of that means nothing to him. Why? Because there is one man who refuses to give him the appearance of significance. like Haman, oftentimes what we're craving, or at least what we think we crave, is not actual significance. But what we're craving is the appearance of significance. What we want, if we're going to... When we we pit ourselves against the truth of the Bible and the truth of God, what we want actually is not to matter... But to feel like we matter. We want to experience what it means to matter, but we don't necessarily want to matter. We don't necessarily want to, like, we, because when we acquire these uh, positions of significance, when we uh, find the relationships and the careers and the schools and Uh, these positions in life and we think that they're going to satisfy us but all we are actually doing is just acquiring appearances. We're just acquiring how the world will see us and perceive us because what we actually think matters is not the, the accomplishments themselves and we refuse to be content with the accomplishments themselves but we are What we crave is attention and appreciation and commendation from other people and from the world. And we do everything in our power to avoid condemnation. We do everything in our power to avoid being weird. (laughs) We do everything in our power. Or perhaps if you are going to be weird, you're going to be super weird, right? Because you want that attention and you want that affirmation of who you are and yet for all that we acquire for all that we accomplish at the end of the day these are just appearances and appearances have no weight appearances have no value like Haman we must understand ourselves to be insignificant that is our true self we are insignificant, and we are also heinous. We are heinous men and women. Because in Haman's entire worldview is predicated on self-justification. What do I mean by that? His entire, Haman's entire worldview is predicated on the fact that he decides how he's going to treat other people. He decides how he should react to when he has been wronged, or when he perceives he has been wronged. Right? He gets to come up with the rules of how he will judge other people. Not only that, but he will come up with the ways that he will judge himself. Mordecai does not bow to Haman. What should be the repercussion of such an act? I think, if you're just going to look at it objectively, probably... I don't know. I don't know how you... Like, why would... I don't know why he would get so mad about it. But we can clearly, even though we don't know what the maybe the objective justification for not bowing to this royal official might be, we can clearly figure out, we can clearly uh, infer that annihilating your entire ethnicity is probably not the right reaction, right? Uh, But for such a small offense... Because Haman has puffed himself to be more significant than he actually is, this one tiny offense towards himself demands the destruction of all of Mordecai's people. And you flip that the other way around. When the king asks, what should be done to the person who the the king is pleased in? And Haman's like, that's me. And so we get a sense of what he thinks he deserves. He deserves the recognition. He deserves the royal crown. What is he saying to the king? Like, this guy, he deserves to be king at least for a day, right? He deserves to be king. He deserves to be recognized. He deserves the royal clothes. He deserves the money. And yet we know Haman deserves none of that, right? Haman deserves, he probably deserves to die and spoiler, uh, but, <clears throat> and yet when he judges himself, he doesn't see a small, little, insignificant, sinful, heinous, terrible man. He sees a guy that should be honored and should be put on a horse. This guy who thinks not bowing to, not bowing to him equals, I kill all of your friends and family and the rest of your people, right? He, that's the guy he thinks should be rewarded. In the same way, and maybe you think, oh, I'm not as bad as Haman. But think about the straight up... Uh, you ever, somebody, has somebody ever wronged you, hurt you? And maybe they've hurt you a lot, but I think... And correct me if I'm not speaking on behalf of you because... Um, I know I felt, I felt this way, where someone hurts me, and my response to that hurt is to hurt them back, but not simply to hurt them back, to inflict as much pain as I can to them, not only to them, but to their friends and to their families and to all of their... No, I mean, but I mean, do you understand? Like I've, Because as sinful, fallen, insignificant human beings... We are terrible judges. We are awful judges. And we are terrible justices. We are so bad at objectively applying justice to other people and objectively applying justice to ourselves. When someone hurts us, we pull out the nuclear option. And we hurt them. Or we just or we cut them off. Or we... Uh, slander them, or we gossip about them. But when we hurt other people, we justify it, right? Uh, it was just—it wasn't that big a deal, you know. I—I uh, I don't know what they're crying about. I don't know why they're so upset. Uh, oh, they—they're just misunderstanding me, right? We are awful judges. We're terrible justices, and our sense of self-justification is just. It's not aligned to objective truth. And so like Haman, we are heinous people. Wow, this is going a while. And finally, uh, Haman is alone. Haman waffles between happy and sad, happy and sad. And his view of the world is so fragile. His happiness is so fragile and so ego-oriented that if if his ego is nicked just a little bit, he just goes into a like spiraling depression. And instead of his friends and his wife counseling him to say, hey, maybe there's something in your life. Maybe you have an idol in your life that is causing you to have just this massive fluctuation between an un- un- unrestless, like, anger and drunken joy. Like, maybe we need to find a stabilizing force in your life. Maybe we need to cut out some idols in your life. Instead of doing that, they affirm, they affirm his, his thoughts and they affirm his actions. They say, hey, you're mad about Mordecai? Let's, let's kill him. <laughs> let's make a gallows and hang him. Instead of addressing his wild and unstable emotional shifts, they encourage it. And right before he goes to the king and has another dinner party, he thinks of death and murder and destruction. And we, as a result of us living in this broken, fallen world, we are also alone in this because outside of the context of a covenant community, what, this, what the world desires to do to us is to affirm, affirm the things that make us quote-unquote happy and affirm the things that make us very mad. The voices of this world, the voices that are speaking to us, constantly bombarding us, are not speaking truth. They're speaking affirmation, but they're not speaking truth. And to have friends, oh, to have friends that speak truth to us instead of mere and empty and foundationless affirmations. And so how does this compare to God's true self? And I apologize for going a bit over, but um, let's compare. Man might be insignificant, but God is sovereign. And we see examples of God's sovereignty in two things. One, how Esther's plan Esther had no idea that this plan was going to work, right? And yet, this plan that she has craftily and subtly concocted, it it works almost as if there was a divine hand over it, right? Esther had no way of knowing that if she had two dinners in two days, that the king, in the middle of those days, would have trouble falling asleep. And that he, instead of, uh, (coughs) right, he like... She had no way of knowing that, but that was the sovereignty of God working. And not only does she do that, but because she has made these multiple dinners, uh, the king has repeatedly and multiple times said to her, I will give you anything you want. Make a guy say that one time, they could be like, ah, oh, I just, you know, I didn't really mean it. Make him say it two times? Make it say him three times? Bro, you've dug a hole that you cannot get out of, Right? And so that's what she's doing to the king. And God's sovereignty has caused Esther to, uh, to have this really subtle, almost genius plan uh, to have the king speak her request into existence. And, the, and another way we see God's sovereignty is the fact that the king can't sleep. King Ahasuerus can't sleep. Uh, and when he can't sleep, This guy who has access to all of the world's entertainment, he has no lack of pleasure, whether it be performing servants, whether it be royal food, royal drink, or any of the women in his harem, right? He could have done any of these things to address his insomnia. What does he choose instead? The reading of government records, right? he wakes up, he's like, he, or he, that's not waking up, he's just like, I can't sleep, I can't sleep. Let's read, uh, let's just read the Constitution. Or let's read the U.S. tax code. Or let's read the transcripts from traffic court. That's essentially what he's doing, right? Bring me the transcripts from traffic court. And maybe that was the point, right? Let's just read something super boring so I could go to sleep. But then he, he perks up. He's like, what happened, what are we doing for Mordecai? We didn't do anything the hand of our sovereign God over the plans of men. Because God is not insignificant. He is sovereign. And God is not heinous like men, but he is holy like men. In Isaiah, when, uh, when the Lord appears to Isaiah... What is Isaiah's response? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Luke 5, when Jesus uh, says, Cast your nets over to this side, and they catch a whole bunch of fish, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, when we, when we come face-to-face with God's holiness, it leads to a confrontation with our utter sinfulness. Haman's heinousness and man's heinousness is, is made utterly apparent in the face of God's holiness. And Haman will come face-to-face with that holiness next week. And finally, God is faithful, and he does not leave us alone. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God does not affirm us in our death. He does not affirm us in our sin. What does he do? He raises us from dead to life because he is faithful to us. And he does not leave us alone as we are, but gives us a new life that we may live as we were meant to be. And in all this, when we look at Haman and we look at how insignificant of a man he is, how heinous he is, and how alone He really is. And compare that to the sovereignty of God. We see the holiness of God. And we see the faithfulness of God. And we see how do these, how can, what hope is there then for a man like Haman, for a man like me, for a woman like me, who is just as heinous and just as alone and just as insignificant as Haman. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus, who was God, who was man. And though Jesus was the sovereign God, he made his dwelling among an insignificant, oppressed desert people. And because of Jesus, the truth of our significance isn't now built on some foundationless idea, but the truth of our significance now aligns with the experience of our significance. In Jesus, we can not only feel to be significant. But we can be significant. We are significant because Jesus Christ has died for us. Indeed, though Jesus was holy, he took upon himself the heinous sins of all his people so that they would become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus, in Jesus, of Jesus, our justification, our self justification is now, it's not self justification, it's true justice. It's true justification. Why? Because our justification is in the solid rock of Christ rather than the sandy and loose foundations of our hearts. Rather than our misappropriation of justice, true justice has been carried out, but not on us, but on Jesus Christ himself. And though Jesus was in faithful covenant and fellowship with the Father, it was the Father who turned his face away from the Son as Jesus hung upon the cross. Though it, was we, though it was us who were meant to be alone and cut off from the Father, instead it was Jesus who was cut off from the Father, who turned his face away from the Son. And because of this, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are never alone. But Jesus is with us to the very end of the age. And so if you are feeling insignificant, or if you're feeling like your sin is too great, or if you are feeling alone, rest in the hope of Jesus Christ. Rest in him who gives you a new name, who gives you a new life, who gives you significance because God has, God has taken upon your sin and has died for you and lives for you so that you may become the children of God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much that though we are but little men and little women, though we are so insignificant, though we are so heinously sinful, though we are really alone, you have been sovereignly present with us, and you have clothed us in your righteousness and your holiness, and you are with us to the very end of the age. And so, Father... As we consider how much alike we are to Haman, would we also consider how, how loved we are, that you would send your only son to die for us, that you would send Jesus to live and to die for a people such as us. Thank you so much for working all things together for our good. And Lord, may we, in the strength of the gospel, in the the beauty of this good work of Jesus Christ, may we live no longer as insignificant, but justified and significant because you have loved us. May we no longer live in our heinous sin, but Lord, live unto holiness and righteousness and goodness. And may we never feel alone. But may we cling to the covenant of believers and the covenant we have with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.